Hello and welcome to Working Syracuse, the podcast inspired by journalist Studs Terkel featuring Salt City residents talking about what they do to earn a paycheck and how they find meaning in those jobs. I'm your host, Bronte Schmidt. In this episode, reporter Matt Mitchell spoke with Mervet Essie Sandy, a hairstylist and the owner of Salon 515 overlooking Westcott Street. The surrounding two-block neighborhood, known for hipster funkiness, features a vintage clothing store, live music venue, and a coffee shop. Beneath Mervet's salon sits Taps, a funeral parlor turned bar, one of several properties owned and operated by her siblings. As a reminder, the views expressed in this episode are those of the subject and do not necessarily reflect those of working Syracuse staff. There are more than two dozen hair salons in the city of Syracuse. Entering this one, you'll see a large Elvis clock and blowing glass paperweights on the windowsill. And at the center stands Mervette, this salon's sole stylist. It does? Yeah, I tried to make it like you were coming to my home, you know, so it's still comfortable because I think I got one review and I think that's exactly what she said online, like you're waiting for the dog to come out. So I think I've tried to make this a little bit more comfortable situation about coming here. Do you feel that? Light pours in through large windows and the sun filters through stained glass panels. I am Mervat SC Sandy. I own Salon 515 and I'm a hairstylist. The business of hair is a personal one. She's known some clients for years, but getting to know people quickly is part of the job. I think for me, it, there's that nervousness at the very beginning. You're getting a new client, you know what the hair is like, what you're gonna have to do. Those are biggies, okay, for us hairstylists. Like that's the first time you're gonna see them. You know, you can't get on the phone and say, hey, is your hair nappy? Is it straight? You just don't do that. Once somebody has walked in, for me, I put myself in a situation. She's coming in, she doesn't know what I'm gonna do to her hair. There's a certain count, a certain amount of comfortability, I gotta show you too. I still carry a little bit of uncomfortableness in myself, I think. I don't know, it's very Her job is a masterclass in juggling roles. She plays the part of consultant, hairstylist, confidant, and perhaps most importantly, hostess. And I, I don't know, for me it just comes kind of, I don't wanna say natural, but hospitality is a big thing in our culture too. That's why Arabs are like eight. Do you, are you hungry? No? Okay, how about just eating? <laughs> it's, it's almost overwhelming sometimes. That hospitable urge began early. As a child, her family left Jordan, flying 9,000 miles to start a new life in Syracuse. Her parents were anxious about what awaited them in America. But Mervette, she had one goal in mind. I wanted to be a flight attendant. And um, of course, I embarrassed all my siblings. I was on KLM. Airlines, and they gave me the little pillbox hat. And I got to give up back then, honey. You got little tiles, and they had chocolate on top, Swiss chocolate from KLM. So I was a flight attendant at seven or eight years old, giving out chocolates. But yeah, it was a big adventure. We came here. The local weather took some getting used to. Back in Jordan, you might not see a raindrop from May to October. But as she puts the final touches on a client's blowout, she explains the climate was far from the biggest adjustment. 
moving to a college town like Syracuse presented a few culture shocks to her mother. Having such a big family and being, you know, from the Middle East, my family tried to hold on as much as they could to our culture. Tradition was tradition. We spoke Arabic, we ate Arabic food. My mom barely spoke English. Uh, the only English she knew was from soap operas, okay? There was a girl kissing in front of our house on Victoria, two girls kissing, and my mother came outside and she said, hey, hey, you lesbianese, what the hell is that? Is that half lesbian and half Lebanese? Like, did you make her into an Arab all of a Mervette's hair is full, dark, wavy, curly, and there's a lot of it. Gold and silver bangles extend up her arms, and she wears rings on nearly every finger. It's been her business to stay on top of trends. Since her start in the early 80s, she learned mastering hair fads can pay off down the road. Now, I st when I started doing hair in 1983, that was like punk rock, MTV, so videos, right? So you got to see what they looked like, and they had those funky hairdos. The hipster haircut going on now was called the surfer haircut back then, or, you know, the punk rock. The only difference was, was hairstylists were doing them instead of barbers. So those clipper cuts were, they've got them all shaved in the back. We were doing them with scissor over comb. Asymmetric. But you don't become a great hairstylist just by studying fashion icons. It also demands some special interpersonal skills. Um, I think people don't expect that um, it's not always easy and there's like an ooh factor. For me, the grossest in my whole career, it was somebody I knew. Her daughter had really long hair and um, would not like take care of it. Her mom calls and goes, yeah, she's not, you know, brushing her hair, it's knotted, we're gonna cut it. Well, she had lice. She has to leave the salon. But the good thing is, is, you know, I saw it right away. Drop everything, everything goes to get, you know, washed, sanitized, whatever. I think it was more scary to me than gross, because God forbid that was ever to spread in my salon. But so Luckily, an infectious energy is the only thing that spreads in her salon. Every meeting with Mervette is an upbeat experience, even if it begins by feeling underdressed. Unfailingly fashionable, she sees hair as the crown jewel of someone's personal style. And even though her road to hair fashion started early, that path is littered with plenty of wardrobe malfunctions. Oh, Jesus. Okay, so when you're in beauty school, uh, you learn how to cut hair with angles, okay? And depending on how you hair, hold the hair, at any one of those angles is gonna give you whatever effect. So I had learned all the angles in school that day. And I had a sister that needed a haircut, and oh, what a great idea. I think this angle, if I cut the sides using that angle, and this, oh, this haircut's gonna look good. Now, again, I think I put every angle in that one haircut. <laughs> I probably ended up blowing it dry for her every day till it grew out. But these missteps served her well. After school, she was ready to go pro. At the time I started, salons were all you worked for them, like you didn't have your own. So you kind of apprenticeshiped if you went to a really nice salon. And that's what I did. I went to the nicest salon. I thought, why not start at the top, work my way down? The guy happened to need an assistant. So I walked in, he hired me, I assisted for a few months. Through his clients, you know, training with him, putting on color, doing all that. That's how it started for me. It was a time when um, 
guys were kind of new to coming to hair salons instead of barbers. They got me started on doing a lot of guy haircuts, you know what I mean? Plus, uh, nine brothers and sisters. I used to bring them all in to train. I'll go from the oldest to the youngest. Mishdeline, Majida, Majid, Majdi, Maha, Maher, Mona, Monjed, Madhat. It was amazing because for this salon, they required that you worked a year before you got your own chair. I got it in two months. I think I started end of October, got it in December, my own chair. The owner sold that salon, and before long, she'd meet her husband and head south, working as a stylist in Florida. But after a baby boy arrived, she knew her ideal salon was a one-chair operation. I moved back, and I couldn't do it. I couldn't work for somebody anymore. I was just too old and needed to have my own hours, be able to raise my kid. And then my brother gave me this opportunity of this empty space to open up my own salon. So there's the bar downstairs. It used to be a funeral home, and people lived up here, which was their apartment and downstairs with the funeral home. Now it's the bar downstairs, and up here I made it my salon. I was blessed to be able to have my own place and be able to keep it going with just myself working. Going it alone can be tough, but it also means getting to decide everything. Like I almost hired somebody, and the first thing she did, like after she was picking where she was gonna be in the salon to work, she gave me a list of things I could not talk about in front of her clients. I guess you heard me talk. <laughs> I did not want that. I wanted to be me. The one-on-one -on -one nature of the business clearly suits her. She wants to make people happy, and not just clients. Friends, strangers, the mailman dropping off junk mail. People are drawn to her, and vice versa. You have to be able to click with somebody. Again, you're in somebody's personal space. I, I, there's something about my personality that likes people most of the time. <laughs> And I think that cutting hair and stuff is kind of personal, right? So I think there's a re relationship aspect of it I like. And you know, I, I've gotten to where I can read people a little bit. If, I, if somebody's kind of quiet and you know, doesn't really like gives me one or two words, I'll stay quiet. They're paying for that hour they book. And from the minute they walk in, it's their time. She confesses a deep desire to please, which can be hard in this kind of work. You want to be good, you want to be perfect. That's not the way it is. It's hard if somebody's not satisfied, if I can't please somebody. But I've also realized you can't please everybody. I've never had anybody like go nuts in my chair, like, oh my gosh, what did you do? But there's been like body language or action or whatever, and then somebody doesn't show up, so you kind of know. Does it make you feel bad? Yeah. That feeling, I don't like. Mervette should feel good about her job security. After all, pair's a two-person job, right? One to grow and another to cut. But 100 years from now, does she think hairstylists like her will still be around? Um, I would be surprised if they weren't, because I can't come up with any other way that they would do it. They, they tried. They came up with that flow beat. Did you see that? <laughs> I don't know, are we gonna go in 100 years to just robots? Then are, what, how many people are gonna be left? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> For those unfamiliar, the Floby is a small shop vac that promised 1980s America, quote, perfect haircuts for the whole family. But as someone who's used a Floby to butcher a loved one's hair, I can safely say the robot haircutting revolution is not looming. And besides, at its best, the job extends beneath the roots too. I was trained to book an hour for every haircut, 
it should only take you 10 to 15 minutes to do a haircut, okay? An hour, because that's the personal time you give to somebody. It's like therapy. It just, you know, looks good. Do you like it? Okay, go. Do you see it? Now we've layered it a little bit. Thanks, Matt. When not in her salon, Mervette can be found at Syracuse Estate Sales. A big fan of 50s style, a parking spot in her garage is currently occupied by an elegant mid-century dresser, which we're told was a deal too good to pass up. That's all for this episode of Working Syracuse. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Working Syracuse. Thanks again to Matt for speaking with Mervet. This episode was written and produced by Matt Mitchell with help from Juliana Whiteway. Our theme music was by Logan Piercy. I've been Bronte Schmidt, and it's time for us to clock out. Music